This episode is brought to you by AREP, American Real Estate Partners. I remember a decade or so ago, I think it would have been about 2010, that we were sitting in the Grand Havana Club. He took me over to the window and he said, look at all those buildings. Not one of them was built by a black developer. You should do something about that. So ultimately, a year or so later, we came here and started doing business. That's Don Peebles, the chairman of Peebles Corporation, recounting a conversation he had with Reverend Al Sharpton. The result is Peebles' plan for Affirmation Tower, what Don hopes will be the first super tall building in New York City built entirely by women and minorities. It's been a long-held dream for Peebles, and his current plan is to build a nearly 2 million square foot building across from the Javits Centre at 418 11th Avenue. But it's far from a done deal. The site is owned by the state, and last year, Governor Kathy Hochul's office cancelled the RFP for the lot, where Peebles was hoping to build two hotels, an office, and an entertainment centre. This is BizNow Reports. I'm Miriam Hall, and today we're speaking to Don about why he truly believes he will get this building done and why he thinks it's so important. He's also talking about his developments in other parts of the city, delivering on government RFPs, developing life sciences and residential together, and what he's learnt from projects that have unravelled. First, though, I'm talking to him about his vision for Affirmation Tower. When people think of New York, they think of skyscrapers. I mean, anywhere around the world, one of the first things is the super tall buildings. But if you look at those super tall buildings, you can't find one that was developed by people of color, and you can't find one that was developed by a woman. And so, and you look at the city of New York, which is America's most diverse city, and you ask yourself, how is that possible? And so when the opportunity to pursue the Site K, which is the one across from the Javits Center, came about, um, we kicked it around internally about whether or not we wanted to build anything in New York at this point in time. And we decided that you know, we would put together a team that would be uh, unparalleled diversity. Um, and put in, um, you know, a, a woman who I've known for 40 plus years, who leads the oldest black-owned construction company in the country. Have her firm partner was uh, my good friend John Fish of Suffolk, and the two of them, uh, those two companies, build a building, and then have uh, Cheryl McKizak come in as a development partner. And so we assembled a team that was 80% black-owned, but. None of us had built a skyscraper in New York before, so I brought in my friend Steve Whitkoff to come in and his firm to do it because they've done several buildings, uh, super tall buildings in New York, including 111 Murray, which has similar geometry to what we're doing in Affirmation Tower. So anyway, the big picture for the vision there was to build a transformative project that would be the tallest building in the Western Hemisphere, so it would draw global attention and how it's built by having it 80% black owned and committing to at least 30% minority and women owned business contracting. So setting a tone of how development should take place in New York City going forward. And so changing the landscape there. Where are you at with the development process? I mean, as far as I understand, you haven't won the RFP yet. The state canceled the RFP and is planning to reissue it. 
Um, I think that was a mistake, um, you know, in terms of how the process went in general. And I think it's important that when the government goes out to the marketplace that they see it through to fruition <clears throat> and don't change their mind. And, and so, uh, because otherwise, you know, I mean, people spend a lot of money, companies spend a lot of money responding to these RFPs, as do we. And, and then two, I think from a political perspective, um, which I think part of the decision making was political, I think overall, um, this would have been very helpful to the governor politically. She is going to be in a tougher primary than she thought. And she's going to be in a general election that's going to be tough too. And in order to be successful as a Democrat in New York State, you've got to win New York City by a big margin. And New York City is extremely diverse. So Affirmation Tower, I think, would have been something that she could have pointed to and, and, and said, here's a message of what we're going to do going forward. You have received criticism though that it doesn't have affordable housing, and, and you've said that affordable housing there would be absurd. Yes, I do. I mean... Why? We're in well, a housing crisis. How, well, every location is not suitable for housing in general. And then affordable housing, um, you want your dollars to go as far as possible. You want the government's money who is going to help subsidize affordable housing. You want their money to go as far as possible. So to place affordable housing in a location across the street from one of the largest convention centers in the country um, th that's an economic engine for the state, to place affordable housing there, when we're not proposing building any housing ourselves, you know, because I don't think the location is right for any housing. But from an optics perspective, you brought up politics and you brought up the governor presenting a case to New York City, do you really think that the, the state will tick off on something that doesn't have affordable housing considering the political moment at this time, considering the housing crisis, considering, as you say, there's a primary which you think is going to be tougher than she thinks it is, do you think that there's a likelihood that they'll tick off on something that doesn't have affordable housing in it? Yeah, I mean, every, again, every area is not suitable for housing. We don't think it's suitable for housing because housing is not going to be the economic engine that is necessary. We're proposing two hotels. The Javits Center will need to continue to have hotels surrounding it so that it can be competitive in the national and global market for conferences. Um, so we think that's the best use. And by the way, indicative of that is we're paying more money than anybody else. My view here is that we've got to start closing this income and wealth gap, especially when it comes to women and people of color. The women and people of color make less money, have less money than, you know, than, the, the, than white men. And so we have to change that by providing economic opportunities. And that's another thing that this project would be doing is providing transformative economic opportunities uh, for women in minority firms. And with more of that, we will have lesser of a demand for affordable housing. How did you get um, Reverend Al Sharpton to commit to bringing the museum? Well, I mean, he, he, I've known uh, Reverend Sharpton for many, many years. In fact, he's uh, you know, as responsible as anybody else for us doing business in New York City. I remember a decade or so ago, I think it would have been about 2010, that we were sitting in the Grand Havana Club and he pointed out it was in the evening that you know it had become dark and the and so all the lights in the skyline and he took me over to the window and he said look at all those buildings not one of them was built by a black developer you should do something about that and so ultimately a year or so later we came here and started doing business and and so uh, you know he's been a tireless uh, champion for economic empowerment for people of color especially african americans and and so we talked about the Civil Rights Museum when I came up with the, we came up with the idea of Affirmation Tower to have it there. 
And he thought he would be, I mean, so I think they thought they were close to being able to get something done in Harlem, but ultimately he made a decision now to um, step away from that deal and to um, look at ours and one other. And so he's keeping it competitive, but I think that ultimately Affirmation Tower represents the things that he has fought for and dedicated his life and his career to, is fighting for economic inclusion and equality. And that's what Affirmation Tower would stand for, and there's no other building in New York that stands for that. I just want to say for a little bit of context for that building, for someone listening to this, 145 is the, the building in Harlem that he was going to be at, and that is a contentious building because it doesn't have the local council member support, yes. but it did have Al Sharpton support. So are you saying he no longer supports the building? Well, I don't know if he supports the building, but what I've, read is, what I've read is that he's, they withdrew, um, the Civil Rights Museum withdrew from that and is looking at you know our building and another and uh and we, and we encourage him that the civil rights museum needs to be built it's important that new yorkers and americans and people who visit from over the world understand the contributions of so many um and and, that we, and during the civil rights movement which is what enabled us to move past segregation and uh, you know an institutionalized uh, oppression so it needs to be built, and um, I like uh, our team would like to build it because it represent we represent what the fight for civil rights was for, and uh, and so you know I hope that you know we'll end up building it for him. How long you said that you were looking at buildings and you thought I, I'll come to New York and I'll do this? When was that? How long have you been thinking so, so, or imagining so, this? So 2011. Um, uh, so, so I think I think I met with Reverend Sharpton in 2010, and we came here in the fall of 2011 and opened an office here. And so we've done other business here, but we've not done a super tall building. Finding the right site and the right opportunity, and so I felt that was the right opportunity, the right site, and, you know, and and uh, you know, I think, and the right moment in time. Because if you think about what's happened in our country and New York, is there's been two things over the last two and a half years: COVID. And how do we come back from COVID? How does New York bounce back? I mean, New York is economically in a lot of trouble, and it has lost a considerable amount of high net worth in, um, individual taxpayers to Florida and some other places, but mainly to Florida. It has lost businesses um, to other states, especially Florida, um, and it has lost its tourism industry to a large degree. So it's in trouble, and we need to build it back. And just like during the Great Depression, the Empire State Building was built and Rockefeller Center was built. It was to send the message that New York and America was resilient and it's coming back. And it was confidence in New York City. Um, you know, One World Trade, another example after the country was attacked by terrorists, that we build it back. Um, here we are coming through a, a global pandemic that has decimated the economy here, lost tens of thousands of lives in New York City alone, and how do we come back? And so Affirmation Tower sends a message that by building the tallest building in the Western Hemisphere, New York is coming back. But the other thing that happened during that time period was unprecedented uh, civil protest around the country uh, for a quest for equal opportunity, equal treatment under the law, and equal access to economic opportunity. So Affirmation Tower answers that moment too. And I think those two moments are the key moments in the country right now, and Affirmation Tower does both. I mean, I, was, I, mean I, I'm, I, I remain surprised um, about the decision that was made to not proceed with the process. 
and I and I take that as somebody early in their you know stewardship of being governor. For me, and this is indicative of a problem with the Democratic Party. The problem is is that the most loyal constituency nationally and locally for the Democratic Party is African Americans, and yet no um, constituency that has half the political strength that the black community has with the Democratic Party has gotten so little. I mean, black Americans get so little out of the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party needs to see us as having the same dreams and aspirations as everyone else. And if they can't say, they're, they're all, everybody's ready to you know, say words on the floor of the House of Representatives or the Senate or give some speeches about racial justice or defund the police, et cetera. But when it comes time to have an equal seat at the table economically, everybody's quiet and the Democrats are quiet and they can't, they will not be successful in a heavily democratic state like New York if they don't give black voters a reason to vote for them. It's gotta be more than these divisive issues, but the ones that are united where we all have the same dreams and ambitions. So, I mean, Affirmation Tower said that and did that in a way that nothing, no one else has proposed here. And so, it, I mean, it, this system has to be more equitable and the Democratic Party has to see African-Americans needing economic opportunity. The home ownership rates between, uh, for black Americans is lower today than it was in 1968. The wealth disparity between black Americans and white Americans uh, is wider today than it was in 1968 during the Civil Rights Movement. And the income disparities between blacks and whites is higher today than it was in 1968. So what it's saying is that these approaches aren't working. We have to have an economic solution, and it's got to be you know, equal access to opportunity. And I think that the Democrats are going to run the risk of you know, other parties coming around and saying, you know, addressing these issues. But the problems that we're seeing, the, need, the unprecedented demand for affordable housing is because the wealth disparity continues to grow, inflation's eroding the value of people's money, and people don't get a chance to prosper. So you look at how the wealthy have multiplied the wealth versus the you know, average person has lost wealth um, in, during this pandemic. Think about that. Is that why you think that the, there is gonna be a challenge in the primary and there yes. is gonna be a challenge yeah, in the I general election? I think black voters are gonna be ambivalent. I think that they, I mean, what, I mean, they, in order to get black voters to come to the polls the last time, the Democrats had to frame Donald Trump as a racist. That was the only way to get them out because it wasn't, the, because the president really wasn't offering anything that was in energizing. And he wasn't, he's not the most energizing person. He wasn't a Barack Obama. Um, and so to get voters out, why would you vote for the governor? I mean, that's the question she's got to answer. In a moment, Don is speaking about his ambitious plans for other cities and what he's learned when projects haven't gone smoothly, including what's made him vow to trust the advice of his development team and to never again do deals with people who have nothing to lose. Headquartered in the greater Washington metropolitan area, American Real Estate Partners is an institutional fund manager and operating partner 
focused on data center, office, and residential mixed-use development and repositioning throughout the East Coast. Committed to building workplaces of the highest quality, from architecture to amenities, to property management and wellness, AREP creates places where people want to be and can perform at their best. AREP, beyond the expected. Visit AREP at AmericanREPartners.com for availabilities. Don founded the People's Corporation in 1983, and the company has a portfolio now, according to its website, of active and completed developments across 10 million square feet and $8 billion in cities like New York, Boston, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., Miami, and San Francisco. Earlier this year in Boston, the Massachusetts Department of Transportation picked People's Corporation and Genesis Companies to build on a site near the South Station. It's known as Parcel 25. And the plan is now for those companies to build both residential and lab space. That's not a typical approach, but Don says it could set a new standard for developers who are trying to make affordable housing work. Our company has two projects in Boston. One is Parcel 13, mm -hmm. which is in the Back Bay, that's Boston and Massachusetts. And initially we were going to build hotel and, um, uh, and residential ultra-luxury condos. We made a change on that project about a month or so ago where we're building, a hundred, we're taking all luxury and instead going to do all affordable housing, all various levels, including workforce. And then we are building life sciences. So that's building one. And then we, and then Genesis, In we- the same building? Uh, side by side. And then, uh, and that's at Ballston in Massachusetts. And then um, part, uh, part, so 25, we brought Genesis in. Um, to join us, and there we are building life sciences and apartments above the life sciences, literally above, and that's mixed income, some affordable but mixed income housing there. We don't often see life sciences and apartments mixed together in, in, in construction and in um, development. No, but in this case you can, I mean, if you look at the Alexandria Center, you've got a lot of different uses over there, here in New York, but I think the, top, the level of life science work that we're doing there uh, gives us the opportunity to, to put um, residential above it. Um, and we think, I mean, again, I think so all... Residential will be above and the, the life sciences, the labs will be yes, down, downstairs. Exactly. And the idea here, I mean, in general, which is why we're focusing on mixed use, is it's environmentally sensitive. I mean, we need to have people to be able to live and work in a reasonable proximity to each other, get people out of cars, put lesser demand on public transportation and infrastructure, and, you know, and then at the same hand, if we build buildings that are environmentally sensitive, that are built for the future, um, then you know, I think we as developers can do a, do a, make a significant impact on slowing down um, climate change, which is proceeding much more rapidly than any of us ever anticipated. It must be um, like a complex construction process. I was just at a life sciences panel just talking about the way that shafts can be used as different, different to residential, what chemicals can be on what level floor. Is it very challenging to kind of... You know, it's, it's, it's challenging, but um, you know, not overly complicated to do. What the bigger challenge is the marketing perspective. You know, do you get people who are, you know, going to spend yeah, lots of money yeah. for luxury housing? So that's why we didn't do luxury housing. We're doing because you didn't think people would want to rent a luxury above a lab. Well, I mean, we didn't want to press that as an option, and we felt that the life sciences would give us the opportunity to 
um, you know, do more on the affordable side. Because you can charge such high rents for exactly. life sciences. Yes. And, and it can help subsidize some of the infrastructure costs because both of these sites are complicated sites. Do you think that that might take off a little bit where people are trying to make affordable housing pencil? Yes, I think so. And I think that, I think that the, what I'm seeing in Boston, for example, in the state of Massachusetts, is things that the New York should follow. So one of the things that reason, I think one of the reasons we won Parcel 25 is because out of 100 points, 25 points were um, given for diversity in ownership and equity. And so we were able to win our 25 points, and that made a big difference. Um, in New York, for example, Javits came out, Site K came out at five points out of 100 for diversity. And we complained enough to where they went up to 10. Um, and, uh, and, but that's not enough either. But um, you know, we think that in Boston and Massachusetts, they're doing some best practice things that we're learning um, as well. And they're also giving us more height and density, not just to cover the affordable housing, but to give us some more valuable density for life sciences, which helps us come out and make it, make, it makes it good business to do the affordable housing. That you've had that site since 2015 though, right? It's parcel 13 since 2015, yes. So what's been the hold up and... A couple of things. Initially we were going to do, we were, we were going to um, renovate uh, and redesign the Hines subway station there, um, which where our project sits on top of. And, uh, and then we had to build on the overpass to build our site. So we did all the negotiations, all the pricing, all the contracting, all the design, and it turns out from the state's lawyers, that we couldn't do it with state money um, because they had to have a separate RFP for it. So The bureaucracy. Right. And so they had to start all over again and then we decided to decouple it and we did the building and the state's doing their own station themselves and they'll run a new RFP for the renovation of it. So that slowed us down quite a bit. Um, and then COVID, but, those, but, but, but mainly that aspect and then the state had some transition two um, undersecretaries for real estate uh, came and gone. And so that cumulatively, but the biggest one was, you know, the switch late in the game from doing the station to not doing it. Tell me a little bit about, and you touched on it briefly just then, but tell me a little bit about the RFP process, now the switch to a greater focus on diversity, because that's been a big piece of your business in recent years, bidding on development sites mm -hmm. using an RFP. Yeah. How has that affected how you bid for things? Well, there's more of a focus on diversity, and I think because the, the, the people have woken up that these are, you know, cities that have major cities that have a lot of diversity in their population, and to not value it has been a mistake. Now there have been places like D.C. and Atlanta that have since the 1980s have valued diversity in their contracting, but in others that don't. So what we're seeing is you're seeing more firms now begin to look for minority partners. The problem they've got is it is not enough to go around because no one's ever given them the chance. So they're now having companies that are larger developers are having to come uh, go out and, and find a minority firm or a minority person to put in business. I mean with on the supplier side. Mm -hmm. I mean because they don't there's no there's not enough minority developers. So so what's happening is they're looking at more high net worth individuals and so forth. And my argument is that diversity isn't we shouldn't be in the business of creating more wealth for people as much as we should be creating opportunities where if they do them well, they get to create some wealth. And it should be opportunities within our own fields. So in real estate, someone should be, the diversity should be 
with developers who are capable of doing it. But we see this is all a good thing and a continuation of what we're trying to do. People's told me on the RFPs they've locked down, 95 to 98% were delivered on, but it's not always smooth sailing. For example, in Philadelphia, People's Corp won the bid from the Philadelphia Industrial Development Corporation to turn the historic former family court building into a hotel. But in 2020, the PIDC terminated the agreement. COVID came, and because of COVID, they did not feel that they were required to provide a subsidy and they did not feel that they could subsidize a hotel in the time period of where hotels were closed and suffering from COVID. So and you so, have to give it up. Right, basically. so yeah, and it wasn't economical. I mean, it was a global pandemic and, and the hardest hit industry in the real estate sector of a global pandemic was hotels. And we were scheduled to break ground on that or it's a renovation to do that in July of I think 2019 or I mean 2020 July of 2020 or and you know we had financing and uh, had met our hurdle for that by the way and it just wasn't rational to do and they were not going to give us our subsidy so it's not possible to do so what happened casually of, yeah. casually of that but look we've been doing public private partnerships since 1986 and so we deliver on 98 95 percent of everything we have gotten and continue to so you think it's you're saying it's only a handful that you haven't yeah, delivered yeah, on? Yeah. What have you learned from the ones that you haven't delivered on? I mean, Philadelphia was a. I mean, that was we were coming. We 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 looked at Philadelphia as a market that was going to emerge and get better, and it was a very challenging project from the beginning. It was a, and then when we won the RFP, the building became a uh, became a historic landmark after we won it raised our, you know, the complications there in terms of getting approvals. It took over two years to get approval from the Historic Preservation Office of the Department of Interior to do anything with the site. And they'd rejected it twice. So, I mean, so that, I mean, who could, it's hard to anticipate things like that. And then COVID, I mean, but what we've learned is that we do bigger projects. It's a, in Philadelphia, it's a $130 million project. It was very small for us. We should have, we're not really even cut out to do small deals. But the bigger deals have bigger margins and they can take hits in them. Smaller ones that are tight margins to begin with in Philadelphia is a tight market, not a very strong hotel market. Um, and, uh, you know, and then, you know, so it had no room for error and uh, no margin for error. And what happened is COVID came and it killed it. Simple. That's interesting that there's a greater risk almost in a smaller deal because you think the bigger the deal, the greater the risk, but right. that sounds like it's not that case. No, unless it's, a, I mean, it's got to be a cookie cutter deal and wide margins. So the smaller deals are smaller dollars. And if you have smaller deals and smaller margins and the dollars are very small and anything goes wrong, you don't have enough room to recover it. And I got talked into Philadelphia, the mayor invited me up there um, or, or down there to meet with him um, and t wanted me to build and wanted uh, me to build a hotel there. He, they didn't have a, a black owned hotel and wanted me to do that. And so you were convinced. <laughs> I was convinced. And, and by the way, one of the other things I learned is I should, I, I should listen to my development team. Um, and, uh, and I, I should listen to my son. He begged me not to do it. Oh, really? And he was, he was working for us as, a, as an intern then. And he begged me not to do it. 
Why'd um, you do it? Because I felt it was, a, it, it was a good symbol and it was a small amount of money and I figured that we'd figure out a way to make money off of it. And if not, I would stick it in a family trust and we'd own it long term. And at some point, Philadelphia would continue to emerge and, you know, um, it's got a lot of historical significance. But in the end of the day, it was just too small and too complicated and too tight of a margin. Are you often talked into things like that? No, not that often. Well, how do you do it? I mean, the mayor, it was Michael Nutter, he was very persuasive and he made a good point. And I think that, I mean, I think the city like that with that kind of diversity should have one. And also, we were, and we were coming out of the financial crisis. I think this was, we must have gotten that deal in 2013 or something like that. So we were just coming out of it, we were building a pipeline. So, I, I mean, I took it. And the same thing, you mentioned D.C., same thing there. I mean, except that one. That all ended up in court, right? Where you were disputing with par previous partners? No, not even a partner. A, um, a, a local uh, person that we were going to try to partner with. And, uh, but that deal, we were financed in three days away from closing. So it happens, but ultimately we'll build that building. What happened there? So is, it is going to go ahead? Well, I think ultimately. The city wants to build it. The mayor wants to build it. Um, we want to build it. And, uh, and you know, not, they're not going to work. They haven't you know, done a new RFP or anything else. It's sitting there. And uh, we'll figure out the legal process. We won almost every, we got the litigation with the former part. He wasn't, he was the, the local minority guy that we were trying to bring into the deal. Um, and, and there's a lesson there too, but um, so, uh, you know, we have won motions to dismiss and dismissed essentially every, of the numerous counts of his lawsuit, almost all, I think there's two remaining that are insignificant. So, you know, we, we're, you know, I'm optimistic on that. But what, what I learned there, I can't do business, we can't do business with anybody who doesn't have something to lose. You know, we had I put in 10 plus million dollars of our company's money um, and, into that deal and to have somebody else, no one else, anyone who had something to lose would never have tried to block the deal from proceeding because their money would be in it too. They just have a dispute, you build a building and we dispute it out over the economics. In this case, they had no stake in the project, but they sued anyway in a court system and they slowed the court system down, it took a while. So I learned don't do business with people who don't have skin in the game and something to lose. You have obviously got a project that's very ambitious in New York, but there are a lot of problems that you keep bringing up, regulation issues, political issues. Why are you so interested in doing something so complicated and, and, and I guess, blue sky thinking in the city? Well, I think, one, New York City is resilient. It always bounces back. It will again. It'll bounce back. It'll reinvent itself a bit and it'll bounce back. Um, it is the center of the universe when it comes to capitalism and finance. It's got, it's the center of the universe for, the, for performing arts. It's, you know, the center of the universe for media. I mean, so it will come back. And so, but it'll come back differently. The way people work and office workers, the way they work is different now. And it will continue to be different. And we're gonna work through as a society how different that becomes. But there will be a demand and continue to be a demand for office space. And, you know, and then Affirmation Tower, I mean, the only thing that, one of the few things that have kept me in this business for so long and why I'm not mayor of New York or Washington, D.C., is that I wanted to build this building. I mean, I considered running for mayor of Washington, D.C. in 2010. And when I was interviewed by the Washington Post, they asked me what, was I, what did I not accomplish in business that I wanted to accomplish. And I said, super tall building in New York City. And so I wanted to get that done. And so um, that's a part of what motivates me. I mean, I'm, I'm not, 
I mean, I've never, I didn't go into the business just so I could accumulate wealth. Um, I went into the real estate business wanting to earn a living and be able to support myself and my family and when, if I had kids, et cetera, to be able to provide for them. But I did it to be transformative. Um, and so I've tried to pick projects that are transformative. What I did at the, what we did at the Royal Palm, transformative. The Bath Club, buying the oldest social club in the Southeast United States, being the first black member and buying the club, transformative. Doing you know, some of the other things that we've done around the country, tr transformative. So, I've been, so Affirmation Tower will be the ultimate transformative project. Build the tallest building in the Western Hemisphere, do it in New York City, and do it in a way that's never been done in terms of diversity. Building a building that's never been done physically because it'd be the tallest, and then doing it in a way that's never been done before, and hopefully setting a mess, setting a message, and sending a message that, um, you know, that this is what New York and America is. It's a place of great opportunity, and and that's what you know, um, you know what, what I'm motivated to do. I try to dream um, dreams that are big, and transformative, and that and then I pursue those dreams. And so I'm not going to hit the stars every time. You know, I'm not going to hit the moon every time, and, but I'm going to take my shot. And so sometimes I'll miss, you know, I'll miss something like Philadelphia or I'll, you know, I, you know, I'll miss something, you know, else. But I mean, I'm in a business that is a dreaming business. And so, you know, but Affirmation Tower should be built because of what it means. And I don't think there's anybody else in the marketplace today that could do it other than me. Once it's done, you'll be done then, will you? Oh yeah, I hope my son would then be, he's in the business, he's the executive vice president of the company, he does a great job, and I would think the company would be in good hands with him, and hopefully my da daughter will have some interest in it, and the two of them can work together. But I want to do some other things. I do, I mean, I, I've kicked around uh, public service, and I think that, you know, um, that's probably going to be, you know, the next thing and, and that I do. And I probably won't wait to finish Affirmation Tower. If we get awarded it, you know, I'll get it going and so forth. So I'm, but I'm not sure. But I, I certainly, I mean, um, I did not think in my lifetime, I was born in 1960, so I didn't think in my lifetime um, we'd have a, a black president. Um, I thought we would have had a woman by now, though. And, um, and so when I was growing up and during the Civil Rights Movement and so forth, it just didn't, it seemed so out of, reach. So, um, you know, knowing Barack Obama and being there in the beginning with him, it changed me, my perspective. And so I felt a lot more was possible. So now I look at, you know, things, there's just not enough time to do everything. You know, I'm 62, so how much time do I have left? And now how do I use that time to be productive? And so I've tried to use business since I, I, I think politics is the transformative space in our society. I've tried to use business as a tool of transformation. And uh, an affirmation tower would be the ultimate tool of transformation. Because there would be, I assure you, that if we get the opportunity to build affirmation tower, when it opens, it will be the most visited building in New York City. I mean, this would be a building that uh, black Americans would be immensely proud of. This would be a building that women will be immensely proud of and they'll want to show it to their families, and they'll want to see it. And that's, and that's, what, that's what buildings that are symbols should represent as the great possibilities. And that's what the Empire State Building represented, and that's what One World Trade, that's what Rockefeller Center, they all represented that. And they were all you know, highly visited and during their time, and still are. But I think that 
what we'd be doing is meeting a moment that this country should have met a long time ago. Don, thank you so much for making time. Sure, you're welcome, thank you. I'm Miriam Hall, this is BizNow Reports. Thanks for listening.